So let's begin Mark chapter 10. Beginning in verse 17. You can follow as I read, please. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witnesses. Do not... Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at these words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. And truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, and mothers and children in fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. There's a lot there, isn't there? In Mark's gospel, there is and has been, we've been seeing this regular call to discipleship, just very plainly, right? throughout the gospel of Mark. And again and again and again, we see that there is a cost associated with this call to follow Christ, right? right? And we, we've talked about it in terms at times, and we've talked about it in terms of disciples under pressure, okay? Disciples under pressure. And I was thinking about that and thinking about this passage here in front of us too often. I think our description and our invitation that we as the church give, that as, as believers, that we give to others to, to follow Jesus, I think too often we do not emphasize, let alone mention even, the cost. We don't emphasize or, or mention the persecution that can come, the pressure that will come with following Jesus. Now, we are right Right in talking to people about the about Jesus and the cross and His love for us, we are right to always put the invitation in the context of God's love, for we know that it is God's love that there is an invitation. Without God's love, there wouldn't even be an offer, would there? And so we are right, and we must highlight and celebrate also how we just sang that Jesus is in fact better than anything this world has to offer, and so we want to emphasize those things. 
But we mislead, okay? And I think sometimes we are misled, but we, we mislead and risk recruiting, if you want to say it that way, name only Christians when we don't emphasize the cost. Perhaps Jesus would have failed uh, most evangelism classes given that he couldn't close the deal with this rich young ruler right here in this passage, right? It's like, come on, right? The rich young ruler, right? He, he, he was like right there on the edge. All you had to do was, was pray the sinner's prayer and he was in, right? You know, Jesus probably would have got a big fat F in his evangelism class, right? After all, this guy was the perfect candidate. Right? He, was, he was. Let's look at him for a minute. I think it's easy to, to say, oh, these rich guys, because none of us feel like we're rich. So we're like, yeah, he's a rich, arrogant, entitled, blah, you know, whatever. I'm like, I don't know. I think we need to slow down. Might see ourselves in here this morning. I know I have in looking at this guy. Right? He, he, had, he was the perfect candidate for Jesus to close the deal with him. He was young, wealthy, well-liked, religious. He had a bright future. In fact, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he tells us that he had a good, respectable job, this guy did. He was admired, right? This rich young ruler was admired. Good morals, self-control, apparently. He's the kind of guy, actually, I would say that most dads would want their daughter to marry, right? Right? And the ideal man, maybe you could say. He had a respectable, honorable, uh, religious discipline and zeal in his life. He cared about spiritual things. Say, so how do you know that? Well, well, here he is uh, showing up and literally bowing at Jesus' feet, right? And so he had all these things going for him, and yet what we just read is that he ends up turning away. And the reason this happened is because of one main theme that I think we see set over the top of this passage, and it's again something we see in Mark, and that is that the gospel rejects easy believism, right? And you might bristle a bit at that and say, hold on, it does say believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That sounds pretty easy, but as we will take up here in our second point this morning uh, this understanding of believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this understanding of belief is often misunderstood okay uh, believe should not be seen in the scriptures as casual agreement with some facts right see that's what easy believism says and easy believe believism would say hey Go ahead, just say this prayer, do the thing, whatever that is, saying the prayer, walking the aisle, and you're in, right? You've heard these kind of things, maybe not in that context, but that's essentially, you get the sense that that's what's being said. I wonder how many churches today would have embraced the rich young ruler and baptized him that day. We actually see a lot of this within Baptist churches, I think. 
And you say, what do you mean? I say, well, I would say, call a Baptist church and ask them how many members they have and on their roster, and then ask them how many people they have on average in attendance on a Sunday morning. And you'll hear something like this. We have about 850 members, and our average attendance on a Sunday morning is about 400. Where are all the others? Right? So we, see, we are seeing, right, even in that, in the church today, I think, we are seeing, right, how people will show up for a service, right, show up for a season, get excited, get baptized, become members, but then they're never seen again. This is the easy believism that I'm talking about. The other thing we see is that, so we see it within the, the, how we handle membership in, in our churches. Uh, we also see it in, in how... Uh, this easy believism, we also see it, it lacks uh, accountability and intimacy that God intends for his people, right? right? And, and it's important, we should say, and, and it's like the, Jesus has given the keys to deal with this sort of thing to the congregation, uh, that is to the members of his local church. You, the congregation, have the responsibility to hold one another accountable, to pursue one another, to help ensure that the gospel in one another's life grows deep in one another so that we can become firmly planted in Christ. We have that responsibility. That's the congregation's authority to hold each other accountable towards that so that we are not swept away so easily by the cares of this world so it's right for us to get involved in each other's life. And we see Jesus modeling that for us as he gets to the point here right in the beginning explaining, hey, we need to make sure this guy understands the gospel. And so a lot of what we do just on the most basic level in terms of holding one another accountable and loving each other well is making sure that we understand the gospel, but not just in our intellectually making sure in our lives that that gospel is is working itself out in the life that's what Jesus is pressing back against this guy here he's saying hey you you saying you're in you want to be in but where is it how is it playing out in your life and so he comes to Jesus asking hey i I uh, want eternal life. What do I need to do? Right? He wants in. He, he also, we can highlight the fact that this guy knows where to go, doesn't he? He's going to the right place. He believes the right things. He's going to the right place. He wants the right thing. Eternal life. So Jesus has a guy in front of him that wants in. And what does Jesus do? Well, he is clear with the fundamental call of the gospel and begins with this humbling point. It's our first point this morning. If you're taking notes, you can find that point on the back of your bulletin. He begins with this point. Only God is good and works won't work. All right? That's our summary of verses 17 through 20. Jesus doesn't need you. You need Jesus. That's a hard, humbling point, isn't it? It takes away control from us. You're not in control. We don't want to hear that. You can't earn. You can't earn it. You see, if and when your obedience to the law, 
causes you to feel righteous. That's what we're going to see here in the text. If you can like look at your life and your obedience to the law and what God is calling to, if you could look at that and it causes you to reflect on that and feel righteous, then I think what we see here is that we've misread the law. Uh, so this is what's happening here in our first point. The man runs up to Jesus, see there, 17, runs up to Jesus, kneels at his feet and asks, hey, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, this man would have known that a Jewish rabbi like Jesus, okay, he would have known that a Jewish rabbi would not allow the word good to be applied to them, okay? But it still, it does ask the question or begs the question, I think, was this guy, what was, guy, what was he doing with that by calling Jesus good? Was he trying to butter Jesus up? Like maybe he'll hook me up, you know, slide me some sort of deal here with this eternal life thing. I don't know. I don't think so, right? I think he recognized that Jesus was God. If he didn't recognize it, as a religious man, he would have known right away that Jesus was affirming that he, in fact, was God by his statement there in verse 18. Look there. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Jesus, in that statement, is affirming that he is both good and therefore that he is God, right? Otherwise, he would have rejected that. Now, the other thing that Jesus was saying in this statement is that we are not good like God. Right? In fact, Scripture is clear throughout that we are all sinners. The entire human race. In Psalm 14, we see it says there, the Lord looks down on the human race and says, all have turned, all of us. He's looking down on, this is the Lord in Psalm 14, looking down on the human race, and he says, all have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. Again, looking down, that's what he's saying about all of us. There is no one down there that, that does good, not even one. And in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and then in 1 John 1.8, it says, Man, there's lots of trouble on us if we, don't, if we don't agree that we are, in fact, sinners. It says, We have it says, for those that say we have no sin, or I have no sin, man, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're a liar. We're calling God a liar. Right? The Bible teaches that we are born sinners. Right? That we are sinners by birth, but hear it, hear it, and this is where we struggle a little bit, that we are sinners by birth, but also sinners by choice. I choose my sin, right? We, we are sinners, and this is important. Like we say it another way, we are sinners, right, in practice, not just sinners in theory. And so you have this righteous man, this pious man walking up to Jesus. He seems humble enough to inquire, right? He seems, in fact, his posture that he's bowing at Jesus' feet. He has this desire for eternal life. And he seems to be acknowledging that only God can give it. And Jesus explains to him, look, look, no one is good but God. And then verse 19, he lists, Jesus lists some of the commandments. 
that measure and assess one's goodness, right? Look there, 19. He says, hey, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says what? Right? Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Right? And you can almost sense his excitement. Boy, I'd be really excited if I could say that, wouldn't you? I've kept all of them. Man, I'd feel pretty good. You know, this arrogance plagues many. Right? Some of those who come across most humble don't realize their arrogance. Do we? Rich people and poor people can carry themselves with a false humility. Some of the most humble men I have known in my life, I was thinking of them as I was studying this. My grandpa, who died at 102. My dad, I, I see him as someone who is humble. My, now I see it, I think, in my brother. And I was reflecting on that. What, why do I think that? They are gem, genuinely known as humble. And I was processing that. Why is that? Right? They... I'm not talking about a false piety. They don't have that at all. Uh, or, or a pretentious listening ear. They're actually probably not very good listeners. Uh, and I'm not talking about those who can articulate humble confessions. But someone that, that genuinely believes they are great sinners in need of grace Someone who aims to keep the law of Christ but sees too how they broke it and are wrecked by their failure with little, sometimes with little to no thought of their success. There's this humility. And this humility has a profound impact on us, doesn't it? When we come to that place, that humility has a profound impact for it brings a person in low. It brings a person, when you have that kind of, that brokenness, like, man, I, and you see it in Paul when he's like, man, I'm the chief of sinners. It, it brings us in low to all our relationships, first to God, then to others. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Poverty. Poverty. The rich young ruler did not have poverty of spirit, right? The rich young ruler, though, takes on a posture of humility, right? Bowing at Jesus' feet. But he does so, it seems as we reflect and press into the text, he does so with an attitude of a meritorious spirit. You see it? The external posture is right. Right? There's bowing at Jesus' feet. But the internal posture is self-right. Which makes it wrong. Okay? I say self-right because I picture him bowing there. And as he's bowing and talking and Jesus is, is mentioning the commandments, I, I picture him bowing there and then ruminating in his mind of how right he is and how good he has done. And 
in all the many ways he didn't fail God like so many people fail, right? And then we hear him say what he's ruminating on, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Just tell me, teacher, is there anything else? I'll do it because I'm good like that, right? Just tell me, teacher, I'll do it because I'm disciplined like that. You know, Jesus, you just tell me, as you can see, I'm pretty serious about my faith like that. Just tell me, and I'll do it. Right? You know, we know the drill in terms of externals here this morning. Some of us are better at it than others, but all of us are pretty good. We can get the external posture right. I can get it right. I know many of you can get it right. But it's scary, and I think we're being warned that we can get it wrong internally, right? What about your internal posture this morning? You see, only God can see it. I was talking to a lady this week, and she was going through a very tough time, and so I wanted to introduce her to Jesus, and I started sharing with her, and she she listed off to me a number of true statements that she believed about God, faith, and specifically about Jesus. And as we kept talking, she concluded one of her true statements about Jesus with, and this is what she said, I'm a good person, and so I know where I'm going when I die. I'm a good person, so I know God is going to help me. And I said, ma'am, I know you've had a hard day and you are in a difficult season and you've been sinned against greatly. But you are not good enough to earn the attention that you need from God. And she said, well, now you got my attention. I would like to hear more. No one is good enough but God alone. Right, I'll guarantee you this rich young ruler was a way better man than me. And while we're at it, I might as well say it. He's probably better than many of you. Better husband, better father, better worker. Is your internal posture self-right? We have a great tendency to think, and we sang it actually, to think more highly of ourselves, to think our performance is better than it actually is. Right? I know I'm, I'm like that. I'm prone to think I'm set. That's very dangerous. Here's the problem. When we look at the rich young ruler. His external performance covered up, kept him from seeing the attitude of his heart. Right? He was confident. He says it. I've kept the law from my youth, but... The law says, thou shalt not covet. Did he not see his covetous heart? Well, why not? Well, probably because, like you, he routinely tithed. Hmm. Well, the law also says, right, so he's saying, I've kept, I've kept, Jesus, I've kept the law from my youth. Well, the law also says, have no gods before you. Did he not see that money was his God? 
I think he walked away seeing that that, in fact, was the case. This man's law-keeping had the wrong effect on him. He experienced law affirming his righteousness. But what we learn in the scripture is that the law is to help us see that we are sinners. Romans 3.20 says, For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law, because knowledge of sin comes through the law. When we try to do good keeping the law, we're supposed to realize how terrible we are at it. Right? <laughs> the law helps us see clearly how much we fall short of our good God. Right? The law helps us see that works won't work, just as Romans 3.20 says. The law helps us see that works won't work in justifying ourselves. We've got to get rid of this meritorious attitude. When we come to Jesus, the rich young ruler saw the law, reflected on the law, and concluded, I can tick all those boxes, I have done all the things, but the attitude kept him from seeing that his heart was still in rebellion. The law should have highlighted his rebellion, but instead it masked it. Attitude, the internal posture, was out of whack. Internally, I need to see Internally, this morning, we need to see that only God is good and our works won't work. Right? Even my best, I have to confess. And we've got to preach this to us all the time, folks. I've got to, you say, well, this is old hat. I've heard this before. I've got to, I've got to preach this to myself every single day that even my best doesn't measure up. That I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do and could do to fix it. I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor, so I have to ask the question. Not just looking at what I'm doing externally, but I'm asking, is my mind and heart on its knees? Right? Jesus looked at him, loved him, and tells him how he could inherit eternal life. Transfer your allegiance and follow me. This is the gist of 21 and 22. See there. Our second point, faith is following. The rich young ruler is very committed to all that he had attained. Lots of hard work had produced a lot of good results in his life. His money, his status, his success. Think of that. His money, his status, success were roots that grew deep and wide. And he did not want to give that up to follow Jesus, which is why it says he walked away grieved because Jesus was saying, you must transfer your trust, right? When the scripture says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, it is calling you to trust. Perhaps we understood, understand trust and are more familiar with applying that than we are the term believe. I think the term believe uh, has, uh, is something where we, we kind of have a disconnected relationship with things that we believe to be true, all right? Of kind of, uh, uh, there, there's things, there's facts that we come to believe that don't really have, yeah, I believe that, but, but it doesn't have any real bearing or impact on our life, all right? Yeah, we can kind of take it or leave it when we think of believe, but you talk about trusting someone and that's different. We are often given facts 
and have casual agreement with those facts. But Jesus, you see, is not asking for some casual agreement. He's asking for the whole tree. Okay? He's asking for the roots. And I'm, and I'm speaking, I'm envisioning a tree. Right? And this guy and his wealth and all that he's built and all his hard work and his status, that that's the, the tree being planted in this world system. And those roots are making their way into this world system, into this kingdom, if you will. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, then you've got to rip up the whole tree, roots and all, and turn it over to Jesus. For the rich young ruler, that meant to transfer his trust from his money and put his trust in Jesus because faith, faith that saves is a, is a faith that follows. Jesus knew what this man had a grip on. And this morning, he knows what you have a grip on. Putting your faith in Jesus is letting go of what you got a grip on and instead grabbing hold of Jesus. Jesus says over in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I have just challenged in this just as I was praying and reflecting this morning and coming over, and I'm thinking, man, too often I've got my foot in both places. Faith is following, and it's having one master, grabbing hold of one. In the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus is saying, give me, here's what, here's what from C.S. Lewis, he's saying, this is, this is, uh, Jesus talking, give me all of you, I don't want so much of your time, I don't want uh, a certain amount of your talents and a certain amount of your money and a certain amount of your work, I want you, all of you, I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself. And in exchange, I will give you myself, says Jesus. That's, my will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart, end quote. Our third point, we see how possession can make that exchange that we just read. We see how possessions can make that exchange impossible. Verses 23 through 27 we see it there where Jesus says there in 23 how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Are your possessions this morning making it hard for you to make this exchange? See, possessions will possess you. We can get so rooted in this life like the rich young ruler that we don't want to let go and turn to God. 
right? Do you feel the, the struggle there? I know I feel it, right? Money keeps people from God. Money creates serious obstacles. That's what this is saying. And elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about that, that, that money can be a very real and serious threat. The disciples, they don't understand this, which is why in verse 24, it says that they were astonished at Jesus' saying, when Jesus said, hey, it's hard for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. And one of the reasons I think that they're struggling with that is that in Judaism, riches were a sign of God's favor. You know, we think that way today, don't we? Just think of how you treat people. All right? Let's get real honest. Right? Think of how our partiality shows up in the church. Right? Riches are a sign of God's favor even today. Consider how we tend to treat people even in the church. It's this attitude towards the rich, right? The wealthy and stable are wise and put together. The disciples likely thought, hey, out of all the people that are going to have trouble getting into the kingdom, why the rich? Surely they have the best opportunity. The disciples become more astonished as we read on there after Jesus shares this camel illustration in verse 25, right? So you have this impossible proverb of a camel going through an eye of a needle, the largest animal in Palestine, okay? <laughs> going through the smallest opening, it's absurd. It's, and there's other goofy interpretations that have no bearing, okay? It's actually talking about an eye of a needle, Okay? A high of a needle. Right? And you say, it's supposed to, that's the point of the illustration, is for Jesus saying, this is impossible. Right? Disciples ask, well then, given what you just said, and that's why they ask their next question. So it all fits, right, in that illustration. That's why the disciples ask their next question, verse 26. Well then Jesus, who on earth, right, can be saved if this wealthy, stable, religious person can't. If the esteemed, if the respected, successful people can't get in, then the disciples are left wondering who in the world can. They're probably thinking to themselves, man, we're just a bunch of goofy fishermen that can't get it right. Even when we're walking with Jesus and now you're telling this guy that seems to have it all right, can't get in, where does that leave us? To which Jesus responds there in verse 27, technically nobody can. Without man it's impossible, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. So we see again that the point is that salvation, the salvation that we need is impossible for us to attain. And the rich, those with lots of possessions, Hear this, we'll have more difficulty coming to grips with this truth. Okay? Possessions get in the way, you see, because they prevent us from seeing we need God to work the impossible. When you have money, you feel secure. And you are tempted to put your trust in that security. And can I just stop anybody in here from thinking about somebody else when I'm talking about if you have money. Okay, because all of us, by the world standards, sitting right here, you got lots of money. Okay? And when you feel, when you have money, you feel secure and you're tempted to put your trust in that security instead of on God. When you have money, you can build homes that are comfortable. When you have money, 
you can drive vehicles that are reliable. When you have money, you can wear clothes that are fashionable. When you have we could go on. Right? When you have money, it makes it easier to make this place home. And so instead of being strangers passing through, riches can start to root you in so that following Jesus becomes conditioned on building a home here as opposed to a home in heaven. And Jesus, what we see here, does not accept that condition. He's saying, I want the whole tree. I want all of you. I don't need your money. Jesus, in verse 21, tried to appeal to the rich young ruler by saying he would have greater treasure in heaven. But when you're so rooted in here as this guy was, that appeal didn't work. It didn't work for him, did it? Because his heart was set on a rich, comfortable, easy life now. He had to have it. He wanted it. That's where his heart was. He was, as we said earlier, rooted in. Where is your heart? Are you rooting in here? Are you set on building a really nice kingdom here or in heaven? Are, are, where is your heart? Are, are you, you set on building into God's kingdom or your temporary kingdom in here, in this life? Over in Timothy, Paul tells him, hey, instruct those who, that's us, again, this is us. Please don't classify it as somebody else, a rich uncle or somebody else you know in the church that seems to have more money than you. You are rich by the world's standards. Okay? Instruct those over in Timothy again, he says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age, that's us, not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Hear that. So that they may take hold of what is truly life. They'll be deceived to think, like this rich young ruler was deceived, to think that his possessions were truly life. Warn them about that so that they can take hold of what is truly, truly, truly life. Jesus Christ, which takes us to our last and final point, beginning there in 28, giving up everything. Here is not giving up everything. Did you hear it? Giving up everything here is not giving up everything. Verse 28, Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you, to which Jesus affirms, hey, this is the right way. Let go of possessions. Let go of here, and you'll be blessed way more. Jesus gets after it there in verse 29, saying, look there. He says, hey, you're right, Peter. There's no one who has left, or he responds to Peter, hey, there's no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for the sake of the gospel, for my sake or for the sake of the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundred times more? See, giving up everything here is not giving up everything. In fact, Jesus points out that there are blessings now and later. He says, now at this time, and he lists things that will come now. Houses, brothers, sisters, mother, children, fields. Now it's going to come with persecutions. And then he says, and an eternal life in the age to come. You say, well, what kind of houses and brothers and sisters? And What do you mean? Am I going to have a bigger family? Well, he's talking, I think, about the church. Okay, so there is blessing right now and giving up everything here. Look at what you get. There is blessing in following Christ right now. See, in transferring your allegiance, you might lose house, brother, sisters, mother, father, children, fields. But you will gain a hundred times more houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and fields. The transfer of allegiance will bring persecution, opposition, I think what it's saying here is that sometimes that will come from even your own family. Right? When you transfer your allegiance to Jesus, the ties that bind you change. And you gain a whole new family. That is part of the blessing. Right? That is part of the blessing. We talk about, like, as Duncan mentioned it up here, this is my family. This is my family. Right, the church is to be your family, right? You go from, when you transfer your allegiance, you, you go, uh, now the McMahons have a big family and some others have some, some big families here, but when you transfer your allegiance to Jesus, you go from having you know, eight brothers and nine brothers and ten brothers and sisters, right, to having hundreds of blood-bought brothers and sisters. You see? Blessings come when you choose to follow Jesus. By forfeiting everything here, you will gain everything. But the gospel principle is clear. If you save, you lose. If you lose, you save. If you give because it pays, it won't pay. And as he closes there in 31, the first or last, the last or first. I want to leave you with this. As you reflect on this and meditate on this passage this week. Giving up everything here is not giving up everything. It's laying hold of what is truly life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to lay hold of what is truly life. Help us to lay hold of you. Help us to lay hold of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us this morning. Forgive us this morning for areas in our life that we have our foot in both places. Allowing ourselves to be too rooted in here in building this kingdom. And, and less focused and, and, and even distracted from, from building into your kingdom, from truly following and surrendering and, and just ripping up the whole tree and surrendering to you. Say, take it all, my whole life. We know you want all of it, God. And that is the best place for us to be. We want to be all in. 
total allegiance. So this morning we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that you will help by the power of your spirit, that your word would penetrate hearts this morning. If there's someone in here, Heavenly Father, that has not transferred their allegiance to you, oh, and experience the blessing, both the eternal reward that will come and even the blessing of your church. Lord, I pray this morning that they will make that decision and, and make the transfer. And Lord, for, for, for others here this morning, again, we just ask, we ask for you to, to help us, to make us wise, not in our own eyes. In fact, keep us humble so that we can see, and as we reflect and meditate on this passage this week, God, that you will use it to, to transform us and stir an even greater conviction in our hearts to, to grab hold of you, to go all in, root us there, God, with you. That is truly life. Well, help us to see it and believe it. And we run to you. Grab hold of you this morning and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.